that we would gain understanding of your word. That you would give us insight, that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts, that we might understand you, understand Christ better. So we ask that you would use your spirit that already is within those who believe within us, that you would use him to help us, not just understand, but to have the understanding affect the way that we live our lives. So as we study your word this morning, may we have our lives end up looking more like Jesus as a result of it. As we see Christ and what he displays for us in this passage, may we imitate that. May we imitate who you are to the world around us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I were to ask you, what's the most important event in human history, what would be your answer? Now, I'm not asking in your life, right? So some of you for your life, you might say getting married or having children, or if you're kind of more on the other side of things, maybe you would say a certain Super Bowl win or a World Series win or whatever it is. Um, But I'm talking about human history. What's the greatest event? Some might say... The Revolutionary War, if you were to ask a history person, some who might enjoy the technology we have now might say even a more recent development of the invention of a computer has now radically changed our world. We're going to see John's answer. Now, I heard somebody already say the resurrection, which I think John's encompassing that in this whole picture of the gospel But the resurrection all starts with Jesus entering the world. And that's what we're going to see John talk about this week. So last week we saw John describe Jesus. We saw a description of Jesus is the word was with God in the beginning, but he also was God. So Jesus is distinct from God, but he also is God. But then we also saw that within the word, within Jesus, is life and there was light, and the light shines in the darkness, right? So we saw these descriptions of who Jesus is. Today, John actually puts some skin on Jesus, literally. Says, okay, now Jesus is taking on flesh. If you didn't see the verse this morning that was scrolling, we're going to see it. But that's why the title of the sermon this morning is just Jesus Entering the World. That's what this whole text is is about. So if you have a Bible or if you want to follow along up there, John chapter 1, starting in verse 9, it says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, 
Glory as, the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we see John, the disciple John, right? So we have John the Baptist and John the author, John the disciple, right? Two different Johns showing up in this first chapter. We see the author John, the disciple John, picking up where he left off, right? We saw this last week. He was talking about Jesus being the light. And even John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus being the light. And now we see right here in verse 9, he starts with the true light, Right? Up until this point, Jesus is light, the light shines in the darkness, but now there's this trueness to the light, right? this truth to the light. Now, we don't necessarily have to spend too much time on the true light because we can understand what John's trying to say. There's a purity to this light. There's truth in this light. But notice what the point is John's trying to get at. What's he say about this true light at the end of verse 9? The true light was coming into The world. This is the first mention of this. The first mention of the light, the word, whatever you want to call Jesus at this point. This is the first mention of him coming into the world. This is an incredible claim that John is making. The word, the life, the light, all of which who are God, who is God, Jesus It's now in the creation that he made. So as he comes into this world, we see the middle part of the verse, right? The true light, which gives light to everyone. So spiritual light is shining forth from Jesus as he comes into the world. In a world that's filled with darkness, now all of a sudden light is entering into it. And the result is, those in the world have to respond to the light in some way. And we see two responses show up as we continue through John. The first response is there's a majority who did not receive. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. So Jesus is in the world, the world that he created. We saw this back in verse 3, and it's said again here. Well, what's the problem? The world that Jesus created doesn't know Jesus. Jesus enters into the world, and they don't recognize him. Why? I mean, this is the one who created the world. How is it that the people in the world don't recognize the one who created them? And it's a simple answer. Sin has pervaded the world so much, with so much darkness, that people's hearts and minds don't recognize even the one who made them. Sin has spread so far into people that at this point, Jesus himself, God in the flesh, enters the world 
and they don't recognize him. They were blind to the Son of God. And it leads them to a negative response. So because they don't know him, they don't recognize him, we see what they do in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So now John takes it even a step further. Now it's not just the world didn't know Jesus. Now Jesus came to his own people. Right? This is, now we're talking about Israel. We're talking about the Jewish people throughout the whole Old Testament who had all these prophecies about the Messiah coming. Jesus actually enters and fulfills these prophecies, and they don't even know who he is. This is, this is God's own people now that he's coming to. And even they don't recognize him, so their response is, if we don't recognize him, we are not going to receive him. Because they don't recognize who he is. And this is the same response we see in our world today. We have a world filled with people who don't receive Jesus because first, they don't even recognize who he is. But then, we have a second group of people smaller group we see throughout Jesus' life, but a second group of people going into verse 12. We have the second response is a group of people receive and believe Jesus. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You catch these dual terms that John's using here, right? Originally, there's a group that doesn't know him, don't receive him. Now there's a group that believes in him and does receive him. So there's this kind of two things working together. There's, there's this don't know, don't receive. There's this I do know, so I believe, and thus I receive. So there's a recognition of who Jesus is, but there's also a participation as I receive him. Specifically, those who believed in his name, right? You see that here. It's not just some random belief. It's a belief in the name of Jesus. It's this belief of who Jesus really is, that this is the Messiah, that this is God in the flesh coming to us. And the result of those who believe and receive Jesus is what? He gives them the right to become children of God. So what does this mean about the first group of people? We have to understand, logically flowing out of this, those who do not know Jesus, don't recognize Jesus, and don't receive Jesus, aren't children of God. Because here we see only those who do believe, who do receive, are given the right to become children of God. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that we're not all of us, believers and unbelievers alike, made in the image of God. But there's a difference between being made in the image of God and being given the right to become a child of God, adopted into God's family. That only happens to those who believe and receive Jesus. But John takes it one step further at the end of this paragraph here to give us just some clarification on what he really means. Verse 13, who were born, 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, those who become children of God, there's three ways they don't become children of God. The first way is not by blood, not by their biology, not by what family they're born into, not by their flesh, not by their desires, not by how much passion they have, nor by the will of man, nor by how hard they try, how much determination they have in life. None of those things make anybody a child of God. But John is clear here, right? Only those who have been born of God. This is the same terminology he's going to use in John chapter 3 when Jesus is having a discussion with Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. So the message John's trying to get across here is quite clear. God does it, not you or me. This doesn't mean that we don't participate in what God is doing, but it means that it doesn't start within us. Not by anything in and of ourselves that we do makes us born of God. Let me just give you a glimpse later in John of how John describes this. In John chapter 6, just listen to this one verse that Jesus says, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one comes to Jesus, nobody believes in Jesus, nobody receives Jesus, unless first the Father is already working in that person, drawing that person to Jesus. Just think about your own life. How many of you got to decide what family you were born into? Did you choose it? Why did you choose those parents? Why did you choose that home? Why did you choose that time in history? You didn't. And that's the point here. For all of mankind living in darkness filled with darkness in our own hearts and minds. The only way to the light is if the light first starts to draw us to it. We can't draw ourselves to the light. God must initiate it in us. So from this, brothers and sisters, there's certain ways that you do not get saved, and there's certain ways you do get saved. So let me just... Hit these real quick. The three ways, we already covered these in one sense. The three ways you don't become a child of God, the three ways you don't get saved by being born into a Christian family doesn't promise you salvation. It does, it's not equal to, and this is clear now. Right? I think the numbers are about 75% of teenagers, once they leave the home and go to college or wherever, 75% leave the church. So clearly, if you're born into a Christian family, that doesn't equate that you're a Christian or by your own passion or emotion. Now, this has been troublesome for Christianity in recent years because we feel like we can create an atmosphere that if we can get somebody to make an emotional response to Jesus in that moment, that will forever mean they're saved. 
Now, it could happen that way. I'm not negating that it's not possible for God to work in those situations. But what I'm saying is just because you had a one-time emotional event in your past doesn't mean your life is permanently changed. You may not have truly believed in that moment. So it's not by your own passions or emotions that all of a sudden you become a child of God. And last, it's not by your own will or determination. Now, I know this goes contrary to everything we believe in America, right? That if you just get down and work hard, you can accomplish the American dream. Maybe so, if your American dream doesn't include Jesus. But in order to become a child of God, you cannot force your heart to believe. You can't determine your way out of darkness But the ways you do get saved, we see all three of them here. First of all, you're born of God. God works in your heart. Everything changes, the way you think, the way you feel, the way you act in life. You believe. You understand who Jesus is, and you entrust yourself over to him, and you receive meaning you now take on Jesus as your authority, a willingness to die to yourself for the rest of your life because, as Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. As I receive Christ, I'm putting myself to death so that Christ might live in me. Is anybody not like bandwagon fans? For your favorite sports team? Right? Does anybody have a sports team and then you have like somebody you work with or somebody in the community or maybe even a, a family member where it's like they only come out of the woodworks with that uniform on when they're like undefeated at this point in time. Just like you don't consider bandwagon fans real fans, bandwagon Christians aren't real Christians. Those who might have an emotional moment or those who might put on the uniform on Sunday morning, but their, their lives aren't truly affected by believing in Jesus, aren't really children of God. We see John continue on to give different language here of what it means. So we already saw the true light is entering into the world, but now we see John give a very specific illustration of what it means to, for Jesus to come into the world. Just look at the first part of verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We haven't seen the term the word since verse 1, where we saw the word was with God and the word was God. Now all of a sudden the word's showing up again. And what about this word? This word takes on flesh. The word that is God now becomes human. That's why this point is called Jesus is the God-man. He's both. At this point in history, once Jesus takes on flesh, Jesus takes on flesh forever. Do we understand this? Jesus in eternity past had no body. Since he entered human history, he will have a body for eternity in the future though it's a glorified body. This reminds us, Jesus is fully God, fully man. And in taking on flesh, it says he dwelt among us. 
Think of the Old Testament when Israel was traveling in the wilderness, right? God gave Moses laws of how how people could meet with God, right? It was that Moses and the priests were the ones who were allowed to go into what they called the tent of meeting, right? For a long time, it was just Moses. And then finally, priests were set up and we see it as the tabernacle and the temple and things like that. But there's the called the tent of meeting, which is where God's presence dwelled with his people, This word used here for dwelt among us is actually the same word used for that tent of meeting in the Old Testament. So literally, Jesus became flesh and pitched his tent with us. Put up his tent. The presence of God fully in him, just like it was in the tent. Have you ever tried to comfort someone Long distance. How difficult is that? You have a a family member or a friend that passed away, but they live so many miles away, you can't travel all the way there. You have somebody that you know that's going through a rough time, and all you can do is pick up the phone and call them or send them a text message. And it's really difficult, right? They can't see your face. They can't feel your embrace. They can't hear the emotion This is not the case with Jesus. Jesus closes the distance here in taking on flesh and putting up his tent with us. He now is face to face with the people. So brothers and sisters, the humanity of Jesus, Jesus taking on flesh, is essential for two things in your life. First of all, it's essential for your salvation. Think about it. If Jesus didn't take on flesh, how would that have affected your salvation? If he's not a man, he can't die. There's no sacrificial death for you if he doesn't take on flesh. But not only that, even if he could somehow die, his sacrifice for us is not an acceptable sacrifice for mankind if he himself isn't a man. The only sacrifice acceptable to God is a perfect man. So, brothers and sisters, our only hope in salvation is that this is true, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, because then he is able to represent mankind to God as he dies on the cross. And it's also essential for your way of life. Because as we look at Jesus, we see what it means to live a life without sin. When we look at Jesus through the Gospels, we see how God intended for us to live. But not only that, we also give he gives an example here that Jesus shows us what it means to be compassionate with our lives. Look at it should be up there, but Hebrews chapter four verse fifteen. Just listen, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The only way Jesus is tempted as we are is if he takes on flesh. Jesus enters our world so that he can now, no matter what you're facing in life, he can say, I understand. I get it. Yet, Jesus was able to face that temptation and never sin with it. 
So Jesus enters our world to be a sacrifice for us. My question to you is how often do you enter into other people's worlds in order to display Jesus to them? You see, we live in a society that's so busy and that's so focused on you and yourself and what you need to get done that we forget that the way Jesus showed us how to live was he first entered into our world in order to sympathize with what we were facing. How often do we enter into other people's worlds around us so that we can somewhat grasp what they're, sent, what they're feeling? But not just so we can understand, but that so we can display Jesus to them in the midst of their world. Now remember, Jesus enters the world, but he never lives like the world. But that doesn't mean he never entered it. Jesus got his hands dirty. How often are you entering someone else's world? Or, if they'll allow it, how often are you inviting somebody else into your world so that they might see how you display Jesus even in your own life? And from here, John goes on to explain what Jesus displays to us as he enters the world, right? We see that Jesus is the Son displaying the Father. Now, this is a scary thought. Look at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If this is true, this means children represent what's true about the parents, a little scary, right? But it's good with Jesus, right? The whole point here is whatever Jesus is displaying, is he's displaying what's already true about his Father because we know as the Trinity, Jesus is with the Father, but Jesus is God, right? So there's this display going on here that he is distinct from the Father as he is the Son, but he also is fully God, so he's truly displaying everything that's true about God, First thing we see is that he displays the Father's glory. But the second things we see is that we see he is full of grace and truth. Both things that are true about the Father. I mean, just look at Israel's history in the Old Testament. How many chances did God give them time and time and time again? They continued to reject them, but now, even better... God is coming in the flesh in his son, and he's displaying his grace to not only the Jewish people, but to all people. We saw this in our study of Acts, right? The gospel ends up to all the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. How much more is God's grace being displayed in Jesus than even what was being shown in the Old Testament. But also, God as the source of everything, God is truth. So Jesus is full of truth. As we see Jesus enter the world, we see that Jesus gives clarity to who he is and who God is in the way he speaks and the way he acts. No word that Jesus is going to utter through the Gospel of John is ever off base. It's always true. 
Now, in verse 15, we go into and we see the witness of John the Baptist again. And we're not going to cover this in detail because we're going to see John the Baptist next week in multiple paragraphs kind of flesh out. But the whole point here of John the Baptist is he has a proclamation. He says, while Jesus is coming after me chronological, chronologically, he has always been before me, thus he ranks ahead of me. That's why John the Baptist will be able to say, he must increase and I must decrease. Because even though he comes after me, as far as historical timeline goes, he's always existed before me because he's God. So thus he ranks ahead of me. Then we get into verses 16 and 17, and we see this element of grace show up again. Not just that grace exists in Jesus, but there's a completeness to this grace that's showing up. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There was grace, and now there's grace upon grace. right? And we can kind of get confused on this, on, well... What was the grace beforehand, and what's the grace that's being put upon grace? And so, John anticipates your question and answers it with verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, is the first time we see Jesus Christ show up in John's gospel. So, you notice what he says here. Grace, and he references back to Moses... And now, grace in Jesus. Now, we can get confused with this because Christianity has not done well in understanding the law in the Old Testament. We have thought that the law was originally a way of salvation for the Jewish people. That it was a way of works to be saved and in relationship with God. And now that Jesus has come, it's a way of grace. So now it's law versus grace. But that's not what John says. John says grace upon grace. And we have to understand here that the whole point of the law was not to try to tell them you can be saved by your works, but to tell them you could never be saved by your works. That you actually all have failed the law and you're in need of salvation. Think of it as a speed limit sign. If you're going 75 on the highway with your cruise set, and then a speed limit sign pops up that says 55, what does it tell you? You've broken the law. The law acts as that. It's the speed limit sign for the Jewish people saying, you could never live up to this. You're always going to break this. You're always going to fail. You always need salvation. God is showing them grace in this moment so that when Jesus comes upon the scene, he says, all that grace I showed you by showing you need a Savior, here is your Savior. Grace upon grace. And in the last verse, we see Jesus is revealing the Father to us. He tries to go broad here to encompass everything he's really trying to say about Jesus. Look at the first part. No one has ever seen God. Which is true up until this point in history. The people of Israel weren't even allowed to go into the presence of God. It was only the high priest once a year. And even then they had to tie a rope around him in case he died while he was in there so they could pull his body out. Moses, 
Ask God to see his glory. And God says, I will pass over you. And you will basically see what's left over. That's all you can handle. Nobody can see God face to face. Yet now we have in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, what? Jesus, God himself, face to face with people. This God that nobody has ever seen before. Look at the rest of the verse. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The Son who is at the Father's side, the Son who was with the Father in the beginning, the Son who is God has now made God known. If you want to know who God is, you look at the Son. So much like people make judgments about you based on how your kids act, right? This is kind of why we fear our kids disobeying in public or being rude or or failing at something. Though we can often be misguided by that because we're caring more about our reputation in front of other people, but that's a whole other topic. The, The point is even more true here, that just as we fear our kids showing something, revealing something about us, the Son reveals even more so all that is true about the Father. But brothers and sisters, similar to Jesus displaying who God is, the Father is to us, we as those who claim to be believers in Christ are to imitate God to the world. Look at this last verse I have. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We've heard this term already in John's Gospel. Only those who are born of God, only those who believe in Jesus, only those who receive Jesus are given the right to become children of God. And as children, as beloved children, therefore, be imitators of God. What do children do? Imitate their parents. So, when your child or your grandchild disobeys you, or when they fail a test, or when they embarrass you in front of people, are you asking the question that moment, how do I imitate God to this child? Or when you see something on social media that stirs your heart in an angry, frustrated way, do you think, how would God respond to this? Or when you walk by your neighbors and you simply wave at them but don't care about what's going on in their lives, ask yourself, is that how Jesus interacted with the world? As someone who claims to be a child of God, you are meant to imitate God. So I hope that stirs all of you in here who claim to be children of God to look at your life and ask, am I imitating God? And if you aren't a child of God this morning, I would urge you to look at Jesus and see that he took on flesh 
so that he could die for you, so that you could be, by being born of God, by receiving him and receiving Jesus and believing in him, you could be adopted into that family. You can look at Jesus and see everything that you aren't, but you can see everything that you were created to be. And the only way you can live in the way that you were meant to live is being by born of God. It's only in becoming a child of God that you can then imitate God. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about our lives this morning, may you convict our hearts of the areas in our life where we fail to live as your children where we fail to imitate you in the way that you have called us to. But also give us rest and comfort in knowing that it's not anything in and of ourselves that we could do to become children, but it's all finished in what Christ has done for us. And as you draw us to yourself, if we believe and receive, we are your children. We're adopted into your family where we receive grace upon grace, day and day again. Help us to remember that your mercies are new each and every morning, Father, that even though yesterday we might have failed to imitate you, that today you give us grace and strength to do it. May we rest in that but also help us to have hearts that have desire to imitate you. That we do go throughout our day asking, how can I represent God to every single person around me, my family, my friends, my work, my community? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name.